Hello, and welcome to episode two of Pushing the Envelope. In this podcast, we talk about making buildings better in all kinds of ways. Talk about architecture, engineering, and building science, all in the effort to make more durable, comfortable, and efficient buildings. Today, my guest is Adrian Lowenstein. Adrian is the business development manager for Skyline Windows in New York City. We had a great conversation on a variety of topics related to building performance. Uh, notably, we talked about a couple of local ordinances in Boston and New York City, Birdo and Boston and Local Law 97 in New York, both focused on improving performance uh, of building stock and uh, keeping folks accountable for the performance of their buildings. Covered a bunch of other things, including materials, uh, manufacturer and designer relationship, and you know, just a variety of issues related to making projects go better and resources available. And it was just a fun time. Uh, it was interesting because I hadn't really met Adrian before this podcast. We had chatted on LinkedIn a little bit. This was our first conversation face to face, so to speak, uh, over Zoom. And it was really nice. It was a great way to get to know Adrian. And I think I'd like to do more podcasts like this. So if you're listening and we haven't connected uh, beyond maybe a couple messages on LinkedIn or something similar, feel free to reach out. I'd love to have you as a guest, uh, get to know you, and talk about this kind of interesting uh, stuff going on in the building science, high performance construction industry. So with that, uh, without further ado, here is Adrian Lowenstein. Welcome, Adrian. Uh, this is the Pushing the Envelope podcast, and I'm Matt Copeland. I have with me today Adrian Lowenstein. He is the National Business Development Manager for Skyline Windows in New York City, and uh, eager to talk to Adrian about a variety of uh, building enclosure, high-performance building-related issues. Um, and he was kind enough to, to join me today. So, Adrian, welcome. Thank you. Good morning to the audience, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, synergy right now with where the industry is heading uh, and carryovers between Massachusetts and New York. So I'm really interested to learn more about how you guys are adapting some of these principles and where you think things are going uh, from an energy standpoint. I think so too. And yeah, that's actually maybe a good place to start. Um, you know, being in New York City, um, you know, you have a little bit of a different experience, I think, than I do in the Boston area. Um, you know, obviously the building stock is a bit different. We both have a lot of old buildings, uh, that's for sure. Um, New York tends to have, you know, a much larger number of high rise and just bigger buildings in general. Um, but, you know, how do you, you've done some work in both. Um, you know, I've done a limited amount of work in New York and limited experience with that market. But what, um, you know, what do you see as some of the uh, well, I think we'll talk about some of the similarities and the synergies. What do you see some of the differences you've run into in the markets? Um, well, I think you have a, a tremendous amount of commercial building stock here in New York. All the uh, 1970s and 80s Kernwell buildings that were slapped up and all the post-war, post-war masonry construction buildings that were thrown up here in New York so quickly uh, post-war. And um, at that time, energy wasn't such a big driver for these buildings. It was just a matter of getting more space, more occupiable space, uh, more rentable space. And I think now we're getting to a point where it's catching up to us. And we, we have the existing building stock here. We have enough room. It's a matter of finding a way to optimize it and make the most efficient use out of it. So what I'm seeing now in New York is that we have the buildings here. What do we do with it? Whereas in Boston, I think there's still so much uh, available land to develop on. And that's why I'm hearing about so many of the life science buildings and uh, all the hospitality buildings in construction or in design at the moment in Boston. So 
there is the existing buildings back in Boston, but I still hear about a crazy amount of new construction there, maybe more so than here at the moment. There is quite a bit, um, and a lot of a lot of that, especially in the city in in the downtown areas, clustered in the seaport, which you know I'm. You know, I always remember as a as a kid, you know, your parents are talking about like, oh, I remember when this, you know, something happened a long time ago. But, you know, I remember, uh, and I don't think I'm that old yet, uh, when the seaport was just parking lots. Um, and, you know, I even, even in my professional career, you know, there was times I remember going to uh, projects uh, on Summer Street in Boston and parking in, you know, one of these endless sea of surface parking lots, you know, the whole, like, 80% it seemed like of the seaport area was just parking lots. And, uh, you know, now you can't park over there. Uh, you know, all the parking lots are gone for the most part. Uh, and there's just, uh, caverns of new high rise buildings. Um, you know, most, a lot of residential, um, but you know, some commercial industry, um, uh, professional offices and things like that. Um, but it's, it's wild how fast that has come up and there's, there's still quite a bit going on there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the the New York skyline, you, you see it from, the 70s, 80s, and then even when the original World Trade Center was there to now, it's like every 10 years, the skyline's almost unrecognizable. And I grew up in New Jersey across the water. So yeah. you see the, the picture view of it. And, you know, when my parents look at it now, every time I bring them into the city to show them around, they're amazed because it's nothing like what it looked like when uh, they were children. And then my few grandparents that are alive, I mean, you know, they're blown away. Yeah. I think, uh, I think as an outsider, I've always, maybe envisioned or heard of Boston as being a, a cleaner city, I'd say, um, a little more uh, culture, a little more spread out and homey and, um, you know, uh, uh, family oriented where the, the New York vibe is just the, the grind and the hustle and the move and the yeah. buildings and more and more and more. So um, it, it sounds like we're, we might be almost meeting in the middle at this point. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and I, I can, you know, uh, I kind of see that. I think, um, you know, Boston feels, uh, just more manageable, I guess, you know, in my experience, um, you know, it's just a little bit, uh, I guess, you know, obviously being much smaller, it's, it's a little bit easier to wrap your arms around and, um, kind of, uh, get a sense of, I think than you know, a few times I've been to New York and spent time in New York, I, I, you know, can't help but feel kind of overwhelmed at the scale of it all. Right. Um, you know, any, uh, one neighborhood or something, never mind a borough is like the same as all of Boston. So it's, uh, sure. it's definitely a different scale, but, um, yeah, it's interesting to talk about with, with all this development. Um, and I'm interested to get your take on how, um, how people are approaching sustainability or performance, um, and, you know, how they're weighing that in the overall, um, uh, calculus of creating these projects or, uh, you know, whether it's a new building or renovation, uh, you know, against all the other factors that play in, um, you know, uh, my experience has been that, you know, especially, uh, you know, it's, it's changed over time, but, um, people always like to talk about, uh, performance and sustainability and, uh, you know, energy use and things like that, uh, especially earlier on. And then once they start getting into the project and have to start making decisions, um, when it comes down to, uh, usable space versus, uh, you know, cost versus something else, um, you know, sometimes those priorities tend to take a backseat or have tended to take a backseat in, in, in sometimes. So yeah, uh, I mean, I'm I curious how you've seen it and like, you know, how you've addressed that and, and how, how some of your clients have addressed that and things like that. Yeah, that's been, <clears throat> I think that's an ongoing trend that when you go into a project, the design team, whether it's the architect, um, 
contractor and the, the consultant have the best intentions in mind. They want to build, uh, build, actually build to their energy model and build to these sustainable targets, yet um, there's some disconnect once the construction process happens where maybe you have a lack of proper commissioning, lack of actual QAQC, where what was designed and modeled initially isn't necessarily what was built. So that when you hear buzzwords or new things today like passive house and net zero, uh, frankly, I don't think it's necessarily reinventing the wheel. I think we're using a lot of the same systems, a lot of the same processes. It's just you see the design team and the manufacturers and everybody collaborating throughout the project so that everything that was planned early stages in design, you're actually seeing that come to fruition through effective building envelope commissioning, doing blower door testing, uh, air infiltration testing, and ensuring what was designed was actually uh, implemented in the field. So we're seeing more of that today, I believe, but I think it's because there are more ramifications to building to lower performing standards. Yeah. I think in the past, you know, you threw up, a, um, you know, building a masonry building block wall without insulation behind it, and you built to a low standard, you know, it was a slap on the wrist, but all you really had was a high energy utility bill. Now there's a, like we were talking about uh, previously with things like local on 97 and Berto, where uh, these buildings are being audited in terms of their energy usage. And there are real ramifications attached to uh, building to lower performing standards today. So I think developers and owners are cognizant of that. Uh, Asking architects, building envelope consultants, and specialists, you know, for guidance on how to address these types of issues. And I think it's this real paradigm shift where now these topics are being uh, taken more seriously than they have in the past. Yeah, I think that's true too. I think the the general the general feeling is uh, much more progressive in that way. Like there's you know um, a broader understanding of the ramifications, and and also you know I think that. Um, I think this is true with a lot of things. When people start to see uh, what what the actual impacts are and what the actual both positive and in terms of cost or or other you know maybe negative drawbacks, um, you know it's it, I think people are concerned when it's new and they don't know exactly what the ramifications may be. Um, but then once people start building this way and start uh, experimenting with some of these new uh, techniques and materials and um, reporting standards and uh, testing standards and things like that and see that, you know, yeah, we still can build buildings uh, profitably and, uh, um, you know, on time and budget that, um, you know, why not try to take some of these steps that improve, you know, both uh, performance for cost and performance for occupant comfort and um, usability and all those things too. So I think yeah, that's I think when you hear When you hear stuff like occupant comfort and thermal comfort, uh, it, it, they're buzzwords and a lot of the uh, standard people that aren't in the industry, typical tenants, aren't familiar with uh, what these terms mean or, or they haven't experienced it. And I, I live in a uh, 2009 window wall construction building and you know, you'd think a newer system and I, my office right now is set up right next to the window and, you know, I have to have a blanket over my feet because I'm constantly <laughs> shivering and yeah. you know, I feel the, the framing on the windows and it feels yeah. like my ice tray. <laughs> and when you experience it, then you understand yeah. what that means, yeah. you know, whistling through a curtain wall, uh, f you know, feeling that air drift. Um, of course, when somebody has a water leak, you know, that's uh, in the past, it's like, 
uh, leaky condos was the big issue. Yeah. Today, it's like, you know, condos with air infiltration is going right. to be the new issue. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I talk a lot with people about air infiltration and how, um, it, how that is, has such a huge impact on occupant comfort or perceived occupant comfort. You know, people always uh, asking me about insulation and, you know, do they have enough insulation? Should they add insulation? Do they have the right kind of insulation? And, you know, the vast majority of the time, those conversations are actually about air infiltration and air tightness, much more so than insulation, thermal insulation. Um, and, you know, what people perceive as uh, a lack of insulation is really uh, a lack of air tightness and they have drafts and they have, you know, the actual cold air from the outside coming into the building, not uh, heat flowing through a solid wall assembly or window assembly or something like that. Um, so that's kind of an interesting bit too, and especially related to windows or curtain walls, you know, fenestration specifically, um, you know, there's so much that goes into making that airtight um, that uh, it's a it's a great opportunity for improvement, you know, across the board, both in terms of the products themselves, but also installation procedures and understanding, uh, you know, how that can play into the end result. Yeah, I don't know the term of it. I'm, sh I'm sure you've done it before that um, the test where uh, some type of testing agency will blow smoke or air from the outside into a window and they do uh, somehow incorporate some type of different color so you could see all the air infiltration around the perimeter and interface yeah. and people see that type of uh, clip or video and that's what opens their eyes. They're Absolutely. like, oh my God, look at all this air. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't... Uh, they're just looking at a value, 0.1 CFM per square feet, and they don't know what that means. 100%. I agree uh, completely. The smoke test is so useful in so many ways. Um, you know, it's uh, qualitative, but oftentimes that's just the most direct way to make the point, um, you know, that there's an issue that, that needs to be addressed. Uh, yeah, numbers um, to most people are just not that not that helpful. Um, you know, they, it just is not that meaningful to seeing the actual air in visual form coming through the, the wall or window or whatever it may be. Right. Um, so it, as a consultant, when you are sitting here making a recommendation, whether it's in the form of a new construction build or a retrofit, whether we should put in, you know, double glazed or triple glazed windows, we should consider, you know, lower window to wall ratio, whatever the recommendation might be. Do you, for some of these owners and clients, are you doing any form of you know, cost saving analysis, uh, benefits and pros and cons between one or another? And is that uh, influencing or dictating a lot, a lot of their decisions? Yeah, we have done some in the course of my career, I have done some, um, you know, it, honestly, like a lot of the time we don't quite get to that level of detail. Um, and I, I don't quite know why, but it seems like you know, we, we we help people understand uh, risk factors. Uh, we help them understand, you know, uh, drawbacks, and we help them understand advantages of you know the different approaches. Um, and usually, we get to a point where we have uh, like a good, better, best, or and you know a not recommended approach for whatever it may be. Um, but then to go the next step and to turn that into um, uh, quantitative analysis in terms of, okay, this one uh, might cost this much, but then in over the course of 10 or 15 or 30 years, you know, this is the expected uh, life cycle cost of that, you know, to get to that level of detail, it, it really hasn't come up that much. Um, and I don't, I don't really know why other than of course, it's expensive to do that because it takes more time and resources to develop that kind of uh, analysis. Um, and I guess people are, 
you know, in my experience, have generally been satisfied with um, kind of understanding the relative uh, risk and benefit of different options, and then uh, using that to make their decisions on. Um, I would think it's, I would, I love doing stuff like that. It's, you know, like a science project. It's really interesting. Um, so I love when people want to do something like that, but often it doesn't, it doesn't really get to that level of detail a lot of the time. And I'll put an example okay. even like with uh, say, you know, just, this has come up recently in a couple of projects, um, insulation uh, of interior insulation of existing mass masonry buildings, right? Um, so that that's a really common um, desire for people that are doing a renovation um, around here, and I'm sure in New York City too, where, um, you know, and back to my previous point too, about like they want more insulation when in fact it may not really be all about insulation, but a lot of it is about air tightness too. But anyway, they want to put insulation on the inside of these mass masonry wall uh, buildings. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, a bunch of ways you can go about it. You can just go to Home Depot and buy some insulation of whatever kind you find there and put it in and build a wall and call it a day and see what happens. Like that's not recommended. Um, there's obviously some uh, methods that have been demonstrated over time to, you know, probably work pretty well in most cases, um, especially in conjunction with known building science principles. Um, so you can make some recommendations uh, based on, on that kind of uh, qualitative experience and understanding of, of first principles. Um, but really, you know, there are still variables and there's still parts of that equation that are not uh, entirely understood for a specific building without specific data that goes along with that building and that exposure and that environment, that climate, all those things. Um, you know, so to really get the right answer that you can be, um, you know, uh, as confident as you can be about, you, you kind of need to go a different, another step of, uh, you know, material testing, uh, modeling and analysis related to that specific building. Um, but that rarely, uh, I, in my experience, I, I haven't, uh, clients don't really want to do that a lot of the time, you know, they want to, so like, okay, what, what is probably going to work? Um, and that's enough of a risk balance for us, you know, um, we don't need to take the time and the resources and the money to go to that next level of uh, sampling, uh, analyzing in a lab, getting material uh, properties, running it through a, a hydrothermal analysis or something like that um, to get more hard data. We're okay with the one step back from that. And like that kind of whole paradigm I see repeating a lot. Um, and that seems to be, at least for me, um, you know, has been the sweet spot of where people get value from uh, our kind of services, um, but, you know, don't go to the extreme of, you know, what we could potentially do. Um, you know, it's, uh, and maybe that's the factor of, um, you know, project type, like, uh, you know, to certain projects are more inclined to do that, um, you know, than others. And obviously if you're working on a landmark scale building, um, that's different than on, you know, any row house in Beacon Hill or something like that. Um, and so that, that plays a role. Um, but just in general, that, that's kind of how, uh, how I've seen it shake out on most, uh, projects in most situations. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about to try to develop a, an effective, accurate model, especially on an, on an existing building, is probably one of the most challenging things in our industry to do today, especially there are just so many factors that go into it, plug loads, uh, it, every component, whether actually understanding what's the performance of your windows, what's the performance of your opaque wall in your roof. And one window might 
not perform equivalently to you know a window on the same elevation like you're talking about if the interface wasn't sealed properly etc so for a building owner to come to you and say okay matt if we put in you know new thermally broken uh, 0.32 u factor windows how will that affect our bottom line how, how can you really give them an, an accurate conclusion to that exactly. question and exactly. uh there's just the the building envelope encompasses so many different components and um, it, it feels almost like when people want to attack existing buildings today, they look to op optimize specific components. Let's improve our roof. Let's improve the mechanical systems or the lighting. But really, everything works holistically. Yeah. And ultimately, ideally, you want to start from a new construction place where you're optimizing your envelope so that you can minimize your mechanical systems, not vice versa. Yeah, and right. it feels like we're really almost sometimes taking that opposite approach. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, the it's it's rare that like the two systems get addressed at the same time. I feel like you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's usually one or the other. Like people will come and say, "Well, there's a there's a problem with mechanical systems because you know we can't keep the building warm enough, or uh, the pressure is off, and we can't we can't keep the pressure one way or the other, um, or something like that." When um, you know, in reality, it may be an envelope issue. It may be uh, you know an air tightness issue, or an insulation issue, or something like that, or the wrong glass. You know, too much heat gain or something, um, and the mechanical systems may be just fine. Um, or vice versa, you know, maybe people, uh, you know, have a problem with, or think they have a problem with some envelope system, but, uh, it's, you know, reality could be better addressed with mechanical solution. Um, so it, it, that's actually, a, you know, a great area, I think for, um, you know, us as an industry to focus on, um, uh, you know, maintaining that connection between those disciplines and, um, you know, working collaboratively to kind of address these issues because it really is, um, uh, you know, it really is both a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, some of these existing buildings perform so poorly that just to reach some of these targets and thresholds where we have this 40% carbon reduction by 2030, 80% overarching by 2050, doing an envelope upgrade and really optimizing it, putting in R24 opaque rain screen, putting in new thermally broken windows, that might not be enough. Mm -hmm. That might just be a first step, yeah. and that'll get us to that 2035 threshold. But the mechanical systems are have to, are, are going to have to be addressed eventually in the, the daylighting and the lighting systems, et cetera. So um, it's, uh, I've heard people use the term the low hanging fruit and yep. really there's the low hanging fruit of effectiveness and then um, convenience. Convenience is just go from the interior and put in a new mechanical system. Effectiveness is probably addressing the envelope. Yeah. So, you know, I, I saw you did work at like a New York Capitol building. Yeah. When you're dealing with a, a client like that, they're, they're looking at longer term 30 yeah. to 50 year solutions, not a five year solution yeah. until they hand the building over to somebody. That's else. right. Yeah. How have you found uh, that's something I've struggled with is this conversation of um, and this concept of like the choices you're making today are really, you know, ideally going to be with you for decades. Um, and so we're at this kind of point now where more people are understanding that you know, there's a serious problem with energy use and the effect on the climate and things like that. Um, and, you know, more people are understanding that we ought to be taking some actions to address that. Um, but I still, you know, there's still, I think this gap uh, or this, you know, um, you know, uh, like just a gap in understanding or a gap in, in, in logic from, from that understanding to what do we do about it? Because, um, my experience is people are still making a lot of choices based on the 
current conditions. So we know that there's a problem in the future coming. And then there's even something's happening now. Like we just, I just watched a thing on, I think it was Netflix with my kids about the coral reefs all bleaching out. And, um, you know, my son is nine years old. Like he was like almost in tears uh, it, it, with anger of, you know, like how can this be happening? Like how can, how can uh, all the world's coral reefs be dying because of the, you know, these changes? Um, so there are some things happening now, you know, that are demonstrable, but for the most part, you know, life is kind of how it was, you know, as long as I've been on the planet. And so it, I think it's hard for people to um, make those choices for 20 or 30 years down the road. So if they say they're replacing a roof, right. Uh, and, you know, they're choosing uh, insulation strategies uh, or something like that, or they're putting new cladding on and they have an opportunity to put um, continuous insulation on the outside of the building. Like this is a big one that I see a lot. Um, it's a great time to put continuous insulation uh, when you've got all the cladding off. It's an incremental additional cost, um, but it's way less than having to rip all the cladding off again and put uh, insulation on in 10 years or something. And that cladding ideally is going to be there for a few decades or more. Um, you know, this you isn't hope. like yeah. five years, right? Like we're hoping this is going to be 30 years down the road. They're going to have that same cladding. So all of a sudden fast forward to 2050 um, and they're living with this choice they made back in 2020. Um, to not put insulation because they couldn't swing the extra, uh, you know, few percent in cost or whatever it may be. So, um, you know, long-winded way, uh, uh, word salad of getting to a question of like, how, you know, how have you approached that conversation, you know, with people, uh, project teams you've worked with? So, cost is always going to be a factor and that's challenging. Um, I think um, I think all these climate aggressive sustainability goals are hitting us like a, a, a road of bricks and, and everybody sort of has their hands up in the air saying, what are we going to do? Um, we saw Canada really lead the uh, continent, I'll say in North America with uh, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, really, really uh, aggressively pursuing and achieving these sustainability goals. And I've seen in, in that sort of carry over down into Seattle, um, all of a sudden air infiltration testing and these aggressive numbers were written into the code and mandated in Seattle. And it was challenging, but they adapted and they started to yeah. incorporate it into their building practices. And that's currently what's going on. And I think, uh, Massachusetts and New York, everybody kind of has their arms up and serve, but we're going to adapt. And I think it's just a matter of um, putting more emphasis on high performing building and what that means. And frankly, if it's, if it's mandated into code and if it's enforced, um, that's what's going to drive these decisions. I think because people had the flexibility in, in the past to when you're considering the prescriptive versus performance uh, modeling approach because they were able to put in a poor performing envelope and compensate for it with a higher performing mechanical system. They went that route because yeah. it was more cost effective for them. Yeah. But we see things like uh, an envelope backstop now put into place where it limits how poor your envelope can perform in relation to the code. Yeah. So putting in these, I mean, it's kind of like in California, we saw, uh, monolithic uh, glass units being put in everywhere until it was enforced and they said you cannot put anything under a double insulated unit no. so once we see these uh jurisdictions or i guess you can call them um requirements put into place it's going to really leave everybody with no choice yeah. so yeah. putting in aggressive energy numbers and 
putting in a threshold or limit as to how far you could stray off that, we're going to have no choice but to just build or design to higher standard. And like, like you were saying, that doesn't necessarily always come at more of a cost. It just requires more collaboration with the mechanical uh, consultants, more collaboration with the manufacturers and design team to actually ensure we're reaching and building to these standards. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of standards, uh, I have to thank you for bringing my attention to this um, ordinance in Boston, which, <clears throat> to be completely honest about, it, the first time I heard about it was today. Um, so I don't know what that if that says more about uh, my, uh, <laughs> you know, my ability to be up to date on some of this stuff or on the uh, advertising and publication of these um, things. But either way, I'm going to look more into it, and we can talk about it a little bit. It's called the Building Energy Reporting and Disclosure Ordinance. Uh, or Birdo, uh, and I'm just going to read the quick blurb from the website uh, that describes it. The ordinance requires Boston's large and medium-sized buildings to report their annual energy and water use. It further requires buildings to complete a major energy savings action or energy assessment every five years. So um, that sounds great, and, and it's a really cool um, idea. It's, it's similar in some ways to the um, uh, we, we have a facade ordinance for um, inspecting facades to prevent, um, you know, the idea is to prevent or lower the risk of, you know, pieces of the building falling down onto pedestrians. I know you guys have a similar law in New York City. Um, it, it impacts far more buildings in New York than it does in Boston. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so this seems like along similar along those lines. Um, and so I'm certainly going to look into this a little bit further. Um, you know, I want to say one thing with that, with the facade ordinance, at least in Boston, uh, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of buildings have gotten away without doing that uh, because the enforcement hasn't been uh, particularly strict. Um, and I think even when it is enforced, I think the fines are relatively low and it makes it so that it's, you know, for an unscrupulous owner, it's probably cheaper to just pay the fines than to uh, go about getting it inspected properly and then addressing whatever issues come up. Um, and I think that's not the case in New York. And I think that the local law, was it 11, um, uh, drives quite a bit of, um, you know, inspection work in New York. Um, and I think that's for the overall good. Um, and so I'm curious if, you know, what the enforcement mechanisms might be behind this Birdo uh, uh, ordinance and, you know, how that's going to shake out in terms of actual use. Um, but from the 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 uh, description of it and, you know, the idea of it sounds great. And I hope that uh, it's something that can drive some uh, improvements in Boston. Yeah, I mean, the local 11 is the facade ordinance. Buildings over five stories have to be inspected by a, a facade consultant, a licensed professional to ensure uh, that they're structurally safe. So it's good to hear you have the equivalent. It sounds like now we have the equivalent in uh, when it comes to energy benchmarking and performance. Um, Local Law 97 is our equivalent of Birdo. It's called the Climate Mobilization Act. Um, and we also have something called Local Law 84, energy benchmarking, where based off standards and thresholds, buildings now have to place their facade energy or building energy performance grade on their lobby. So it's on a rated scale A through F. And, you know, if your building is a C or D performer, um, you either have to A, put on a big D letter grade on your lobby, or you pay a $2,500 fine. And okay. like you said, you know, the building, I'd rather, you know, pay the fine and deal with the retrofitting as opposed to putting a big fat D yeah, right. Right, uh, in my lobby window for everybody to see. Yeah. Um, so 
I don't want to say fortunately, we have to abide by it now and find a way uh, to deal with it. What Local Law 97 has done is it puts a cap and threshold on carbon emissions, uh, carbon emission limits per square footage of building, depending on the occupancy use. So whether it's commercial, okay. residential, mixed use. So there's a threshold that's put into place. And um, however much you are over that threshold, you have to pay a certain dollar value fine per square foot. So if whatever, they, they measure it in kilograms of carbon per square feet of building. And okay. the, the fine is $284, I think, don't quote me on that, about per however many square feet you are over the square footage. Mm -hmm. um, tons you are, I'm sorry, over the square footage. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden there's a dollar cost standpoint involved. Yeah. And if, if you're not in compliance in terms of energy use with your building, uh, there's gonna be a, a fine component added to that. So again, it's incentivizing building owners to address uh, the existing buildings. And I wonder if BIRDA or the Building Energy Reporting Ordinance, uh, Disclosure Ordinance will take on something like that. Yeah. Um, I think the, the significance and the importance is to focus more on performance, not conformance. So yes. we, yeah. we shouldn't worry about conforming with some, some standard. Are we, you know, check the box. We used Energy Star rated uh, appliances. Check the box. We did this, that. Let's look at performance. How is the building performing as a whole? And that's what we mm -hmm. should be measuring. Because uh, at the end of the day, that's what actually matters. Yeah, I agree with that. How do you know in New York how they uh, measure for determining compliance with the with that ordinance? So they'll, they'll look at your Con Edison uh, utility bill, and okay. basically, there's a limit depending on the square footage of the building, uh, what the expected value would be, and then they rate it against okay. your utility bill. So again, we're talking about metrics here, and and there's a really there's a it's it's um, quantitative, not qualitative. So there's yeah. no real uh, arguing here. Yeah. So either you're, you're building to a high standard or you're not. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is affecting new construction builds and retrofitting. So mm -hmm. um, in my eyes, I kind of came up in the big new construction curtain wall boom. Yeah. Um, and so much of my attention is now being redirected to existing buildings because mm -hmm. um, there's all of a sudden now this urgency to address them. Has, uh, does the law allow some grace period for the buildings to kind of get up to speed uh, from when it was in, uh, implemented? Yeah. Yes. So um, it's the thresholds incrementally increase over time. So the first one is set in place in 2024, which is really aimed at targeting the, the bottom feeders, the yeah. low 25% of buildings. Yeah. Um, and then 2030, it gets more aggressive. And then 2035 and incrementally until we get to 2050. Um, and so it allows design teams and building owners to start planning and having these conversations. But frankly, I mean, we're doing a lot of curtain wall retrofitting work and uh, as always the window retrofitting work. And all of a sudden, some of these projects are being called a local law 97 project hmm, or like okay. a Berto project, meaning we're doing this mainly or, or not mainly, but that's a, a very big yeah. contributing factor. Yeah in part to get into compliance. Yeah, I mean, I wonder in the past when you had a building owner um, uh, taking you on or asking for your guidance on doing a, a retrofit or upgrade, it was probably just because they wanted to upgrade their building or they wanted to you know, 
get a higher rentable square footage or you know make the uh, building more appealing to the public but energy was probably not a huge driver to that decision i would guess yeah and that i think goes back to some of our previous discussion that you know a lot of times the driver uh, excuse me <clears throat> a lot of times the driver has been something very tangible like a water leak or um uh, you know, uh, draft, um, you draft your windows or something like that. But, uh, you know, the vast majority of the time it'd be like some water issue. Um, and then in the course of making, uh, a repair to address that some restoration project to address that there's opportunities to improve energy performance. And so we would present those opportunities to the client. Um, and, you know, often in the past, uh, those priorities, you know, were lower because there wasn't some standard you were trying to reach. Like you could do better and there's an opportunity to do better, but there wasn't necessarily uh, a reason to do so other than, you know, because it's a good idea or because, you know, it, uh, it, it would, uh, you know, some, some less tangible reason for taking that action. Um, and uh, so I think given that uh, as a choice between like, well, that's a good idea, but it's, you know, you could save a few bucks if you don't do it. Um, people often would save a few bucks. Um, but if there's a clear standard that they're working towards, um, you know, then it's a lot easier to say like, oh, okay, I understand. You know, I have this, uh, this standard that I'm trying to meet and here are my options to get there. You know, none of those options is do nothing because that's not going to get me to the required standard. So um, I think having, yeah, having that goal is really critical because it, it gives people something to work towards instead of just a kind of generic pie in the sky, like, well, let's try to do better. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's what one thing that I do like about what they wrote into the law is that they said, here are your thresholds. I don't care how you get there. You can put in all new energy star refrigerators. I don't care what it is reach yeah. these targets yeah. it's not like they you have to do this you have to do that yeah. so it's um building owners are allowed to be uh you know utilize their envelope consultants or architects to help them devise the right approach and strategy depending on what type of budget they have but um it gives yeah. people the, the flexibility and design freedom to make different choices that makes a lot of sense and you know something i'm curious if you have dealt with this in massachusetts a big challenge for us in New York between zoning and lot lines and uh, the exorbitant amount of uh, amount you can get per square footage of rental space. They want to uh, build a lot of building owners want to avoid insulating from the interior if possible. Mm -hmm. um, so anything that we can do from the exterior, whether it's cladding over, putting EFIS over brick, um, you know, anything exterior first and leave as much interior rentable space as possible is typically the approach. Have you run into that in Boston or, or is the, uh, is it a little more flexible in the approach? I would say it's, I would say it's the opposite in most circumstances that I've run into because, um, especially with the masonry buildings, the historic, uh, commissions and, and, uh, historic requirements are so strong and stringent that, doing something on the outside is almost impossible in most cases, um, which is, you know, in some ways, in some cases, good, because, you know, it is it's certainly worth preserving a lot of these facades the way they are. Um, and, you know, from a purely building science standpoint, it's better to do a lot of this on the outside. Um, you get better performance and better preservation of the existing structure from a, uh, you know, integrity standpoint 
obviously not a visual standpoint. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting balance. Um, and I guess the, you know, I have run into the rentable square foot pressures on some projects in other ways. I was working on one of these uh, high rises in the seaport and the, it we got involved relatively early. Um, and the, it was a really interesting design from a, from a, you know, a high-end architect where there was, you know, kind of a slot cut through the building on a, on a spiral that, you know, made it look like the top of the building was basically floating, you know, above the bottom. Um, and they had this design to hang the curtain wall from the top, um, you know, rather than, uh, have gravity loads supported underneath. And it was cool. Um, and you know, the, it was doable. It was all manageable from a design standpoint, engineering standpoint, but that required some extra structure that would have impacted the rentable square foot, uh, on the upper floors, um, because of, you know, where they needed to put this structure to beef up the, you know, that those top, um, levels of framing. So it could support that curtain wall instead of because they had to transfer the load all the way back to the core and then back down instead of out the sides. Um, and that ended up driving the design to change substantially, um, you know, more than, more than anything else. It wasn't even really a, a cost of construction issue. It was more of a cost of rentable space issue. So I've seen that. Um, but in, in most cases, in terms of like the insulation issue, um, people want to do it on the inside to avoid any changes to the appearance on the outside. And, sure. um, the uh, there's been you know, one project I was working on recently. You know, I suggested adding a bit more of a uh, you know a cushion to some of the uh, you know moving moving the framing in from the wall a little bit so that it was uh, more likely to get continuous coverage of the insulation behind the studs and avoid thermal bridging and 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 things like that. Um, and that was you know met with some hesitation because it would have impacted the useful space, right? So that so it does come up. Um, you know, it does come up, but in terms of like the bigger question of like, do we insulate on the inside or the outside? It's almost never, it's almost never a question. It's almost always, we need to do it on the inside. How do we do that effectively? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, the more interesting topic and where we should transition to that is now let's, uh, let's talk about the glazing area. I'm, I'm curious yeah. what you, uh, what you think about current glass technology and where it can go. Um, you know, in my eyes, I, I deal a lot with trying to optimize and find out how we can develop the best framing components for a window system. But I, I spent a lot of time talking to glass manufacturers, low, uh, low coating manufacturers, and seeing where they're heading. And I think, um, I think the building industry in general has been rather slow to innovate compared to some other industries like automotive yeah. or the software industry, et cetera. I mean, we've been seeing... Uh, double insulated units for decades, yeah. uh, uh, thermally broken aluminum framing for decades. Yeah. So I think we're starting to see new technologies like triple glazing being discussed much more, um, the potential for something like vacuum insulated glass, glass coming out eventually. And I think these topics are being taken more seriously because we might have to explore that just to meet energy codes yep. if you're looking to do a higher glazed facade. Yeah, yeah, that's you know I was gonna say my whole you know running through my head that while you were talking there is this idea of um, you know the bigger problem is there's just too much glass, um, which uh, you know that that's you know probably a different discussion, but you know that doesn't seem to be changing. You know that that at least for a while, um, you know for the time being anyway, that's the the design aesthetic um, and what 
tenants want and what occupants want uh, from these buildings. And obviously there's a huge stock of buildings that already have a lot of glass um, or all glass. Um, so being able to improve the performance of those uh, is imperative. And I, I agree. I think uh, it's kind of funny when you think about how little that kind of prototypical system uh, has changed over decades um, when almost everything else has changed dramatically in that same time period. Um, that's, it, it, that's something to ponder. Um, and uh, I hope that we can get some, some better performance out of these newer technologies. And it seems, you know, it seems like there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to, um, you know, if people apply, uh, apply themselves to, to improvements, you know, I'm sure, you know, there's some inherent material limitations, um, um, but uh, you know, there's certainly opportunity to do quite a bit better um, than, you know, where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I spoke to a very large coating manufacturer recently about it, where they're headed and what they want to do. And uh, the challenge is that with double insulated units with a low E on number two, it's worked for so many years yeah. that why should they have strayed in any di uh, other direction? There, there was no real incentive or reason to do so. Yeah. And now all of a sudden in Canada, you're seeing all these new builds with triple glazing uh and you're we, we see a lot of requests for it today at least to look at it from a price standpoint and energy standpoint yep. again if you want to do a 60 percent glazed facade um that that triple glazing can make a huge difference mm -hmm. the challenge is you get to a thicker glazed unit now you have to put in a bigger frame and your uh just material cost all of a sudden gets uh significantly higher on, on a square footage basis yeah so you know, maybe that'll end up driving some different decisions in terms of, uh, of the design, you know, the design aesthetics too, right? Like if the true cost of having a 60% glazed facade um, is higher than it has been because we've accepted the lower performance, uh, if we stop accepting the lower performance and, um, you know, decide as a, you know, an industry that that's not acceptable. So we need to have better performance, you know, and thus the the cost of making that design decision of 60% glazing or more um, is higher than it has been. You know, maybe that maybe it'll drive it the other way. Maybe the technology won't change that much, and people will change the change the designs. I don't know. It's curious to think about. Yeah, I mean, there there are options out there in terms of if you look at from the high rank of the scale to low, where you can get very expensive with a porcelain rain screen paddle, and you can go somewhere in the middle with a metal panel, and then you can go all the way to the bottom from cost and look at EFIS. Even though, uh, even though it's on the low end, it'll probably give you the best performance. Um, but it's it's true that we do have options. Um, I'm very interested in the prefabricated uh, mega panel industry in general. Um, Off-site manufacturing, uh, glazing windows into either precast donuts or mega uh, mega panels with insulated. Uh, insulated metal panels and then shipping them to site just in yeah. terms of sequencing and performance and effectiveness. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that, that could be an in interesting area for the industry. to test. Absolutely. And I actually was just reading before we got on the call about uh, one of your projects or one of Skyline's projects in at, at one South first in Brooklyn. Um, and it sounds like that's what they did there. They had these precast panels that were fabricated in uh, Kentucky. Um, you know, with your glass, uh, with your windows. Um, 
so you, you fabricated the windows, shipped them out there to get put into the panels uh, and then delivered to the site as a unit um, and uh, assembled that way. Um, so that's pretty interesting and, you know, certainly takes advantage of some, um, you know, efficiencies of scale that you can ac accomplish in a, you know, a fabrication facility, um, you know, controlled environment and all of that. Um, and then uh, minimize the time on site you know, where things are a lot more variable and, and expensive to deal with. So that's a, that's pretty interesting um, uh, development and, and, you know, way to approach these projects. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it both ways. You can, uh, you can take those precast donuts that are, they were 3d printed in the forms and then uh, uh, cast. And then uh, we sent our operable windows to be glazed within them. Like you said, in their plant in Kentucky, but they hung those mega uh, mega precast panels on the building like a traditional curtain wall. Yep. And so if you send them prefabricated to site and then hang it onto the building, you can immediately start with your interior finishes and yep. move on to the interior side of construction. So yep. from a cost and sequencing standpoint, it, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And you've seen it both ways, but I, but I think um, especially from quality control, like we were talking about and uh, ensuring higher performance, um, it, uh, I think it'll be a direction that we see more of. Um, yeah, that, that makes it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What What about? Have you seen a lot of these? Uh, I'm curious to get your stance on non-metal fenestration uh, manufacturers, meaning looking at UPVC, fiberglass, some of these other materials for commercial applications. I know, obviously, I you know I grew up with uh, in a single-family home with wood windows and they were great for that application but when people talk about that for uh mid and high-rise buildings it's all of a sudden uh, a different discussion and different yeah. considerations have, have to be made yeah you know i haven't really had a lot of experience on projects with uh with you know say uh, fiberglass or, or upvc on commercial scale um, buildings so i don't know i know you know certain manufacturers are certainly trying to get into that space um and uh you know, we'll see how it goes, I guess. I mean, I had, I did one, I did one project, um, you know, worked on one project where it wasn't high rise, but it was a, um, you know, these typical Boston area has a ton of these podium, uh, construction type buildings. We get a, a one story concrete, uh, or steel, and then four stories, five stories of wood frame up above. Um, so not exactly high rise, but, um, you know, some of them are massive, really big, big structures. Um, and, uh, you know, so commercial scale anyway. And uh, you guys call them triple deckers, right? Uh, that's a, that's a different, um, that's <laughs> a triple deck. Yeah. Triple decker is like uh, a much smaller building. Um, usually all, all wood frame and um, really common in, in like uh, South Boston and Dorchester and that area. Um, and they're, they're uh, it's like three apartments stacked on top of each other. Um, right. And usually like, you know, probably one or two bedroom apartments stacked on top of each other. Um, and, you know, one after another next to it down the, down the street, all, all pretty much the same. Um, and so, you know, the, these, these ones that I, that I was talking about are more, um, you know, it, it, it's like a, you know, big condo development or apartment development or something like that, um, where there might be uh, 200 units or 500 units or something like that. Um, and they're often this kind of weird hybrid of like, typical wood frame residential construction in a commercial scale project. And sometimes, um, you know, what might be better left in a residential, you know, single family home type, uh, 
a project, you know, ends will find its way onto these kind of projects. And, right. and, you know, I've, I've experienced that causing problems, you know, and specifically with relate related to windows. Um, so, but I haven't, you know, uh, I haven't, in, in any sort of meaningful way, uh, had experience with, um, you know, these newer framing materials on commercial scale projects. So I'm, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, I think, you know, some of them, some of them have a potential to be, you know, to work, um, you know, material properties are, uh, you know, probably suitable in a lot of ways. And so it's, you know, maybe a, a matter more of experience and, uh, you know, uh, learning what, people have learned over the course of a hundred years with some of these other technologies. Um, but it, it, you know, I think just like we were talking about with the glazing, um, it's probably part of the answer. Um, you know, it's probably part of the solution to some of these improvements, um, like cutting down the thermal conductivity of the framing materials. Um, so, and, and maybe, you know, other factors too, even if you want to go deeper into like, uh, uh you know, the energy cost to, fabricate, you know, to make some of these materials in the first place, right? Um, you might be able to get some savings with some of these other other materials too. So it's something to uh, to see how, you know, how it develops and to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, I think so, the, these terms like embodied carbon, like you're just dis uh, discussing are taken more seriously, especially when you see uh, some of these double skin curtain walls being uh, installed or developed in uh, communities like Toronto or up in Canada just for energy performance. You got to think what's the embodied carbon for a, a double skin curtain wall to actually be put in there you're almost yeah. in a carbon debt quote unquote yeah. for 30 to 40 years and it offsets all the improved performance that you would initially yeah. assume so um yeah. I, I think again a, a lot of these buzzwords and uh topics we're discussing uh it's going to an extreme end but it's helping us at least go in the right direction That's and right. ultimately i think it's gonna it's gonna end up being a compromise i don't think we're getting rid of highly glazed facades anytime soon no. but um maybe it's going to come at the cost of spending more money on glass or you know finding ways to develop or get better performance out of your opaque walls just to compensate. So everything's a trade-off at the end of the day. But I think the, the biggest lesson learned is that we need to take a holistic approach to this, whether it means collaborating with the mechanical consultants or finding ways to, you know, collaborate between your glazed area and your opaque area and your roof to get the best overall performance, not trying to optimize individual components to hope for the best overall solution. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to kind of be mindful of time and start to wrap up a little bit here. Um, but maybe one more question for you. Um, and, you know, as a designer uh, myself coming from that side of the table, so to speak, you know, I often am curious what, uh, you know, if, if from your experience on the manufacturer side, what are, what's some, you know, let's say one thing or two things that um, we often uh, either misunderstand or get wrong or, you know, something you wish we knew about, you uh, you know, how the process could work in terms of um, designing a project or, um, you know, consulting, you know, the, the way we give information to our clients and, and then how that ends up relating to, um, you know, working with manufacturer down the road. Um, you know, what's some advice you could give to the design community um, in terms of working with manufacturers, you know, specifically related to glazing, uh, you know, and windows? I think um, depending on how project experiences can go, uh, a lot of animosity at times can be drawn between uh, envelope consultants or designers and manufacturers. And ultimately what both sides have to realize is that we have the same goal at the end of the day. We want to develop and design the highest performing system. And what's most important is 
how those recommendations, I think, are communicated from the design side to the manufacturing side and vice versa as well. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many um, reviewed shop drawings I've read with all these markups and, uh, you know, quote unquote, aggressive recommendation, do this, do that, rather than yeah. we think this would be a good uh, recommendation because of this. Mm -hmm. And um, I think um, the intention is there. And I think both sides have a lot to learn from one another, but it's how those recommendations and guidelines are communicated. And I, I think there's potential there, but those uh, standards and um, themes, I guess you could say, have to be set in the project early on and doing everything possible to keep an open line of communication and describing what the intentionality is behind decisions. Yeah, I think that's a great, really good point. And, and I agree hundred uh, percent. You know, I think I find uh, like a good word to use is consider, um, you know, like, consider adding, you know, flashing uh, here or something like that, or, you know, consider this change to the frame design or something, you know, something along those lines. And that way it kind of, um, you know, gives agency to whoever you're working with to use their own judgment and to, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, to use, uh, you know, the skills that they have that are valuable to the equation as well, instead of presuming that, you know, you have the answer hundred percent already. Um, so I, I agree with everything you said. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, look, the consultant is hired by the owner or the architect to to add value and contribute their knowledge and what they know to the project. And uh, it, it should be, you're right, it should be a collaboration and it should be a, a sharing knowledge between one another, not a you versus me or you against me approach. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, this was really fun. I, I've enjoyed, you know, getting to know you a little bit. Uh, you know, this is really our first face-to-face um, -face interaction, um, you know, fa virtual face-to-face, -face, I guess. <laughs> so, so that's, this has been cool. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure we'll keep in touch and I, I look forward to some future conversations as well. Um, yeah, I'm glad we were able to share this and do this. Um, I think, uh, I think it's an interesting topic, but I, uh, I, I, I recognize you from the industry and I see what you've done. So I'm glad I was able to get your take. Absolutely. No, it's been fun. Um, so thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Matt. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Well, thanks for listening to episode two of Pushing the Envelope. That was Adrian Lowenstein of Skyline Windows out of New York City. I think it was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Really welcome your feedback. Please get in touch any way that you know how. There's uh, reviews on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can go ahead and find me on LinkedIn. Connect with me there. Uh, email me via our website at copelandbec.com. And I'd uh, love to hear from you. Let me know if you want to come on the show, have it, uh, ideas for what we should talk about or anything like that. Here's to the next episode. See you then.